Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for week ending Friday the 9th of September. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. And this week with Monaway, we had a special guest broadcaster every single day. Coming up on the podcast, you'll hear the funky Chris Gill talk about performing on the footy field. We also had comedian Bill Bailey who joined us in the studio. And we talk about growing up as kids in the country with the world famous tadpole. Marie Hardy joins us for a Radiothon retrospective. We look into the dangers of repurposed gifts. Flick Ford joins us and gets out the word volcanology as she reviews the new documentary Fire of Love. And we round out the week with an incredibly special performance by Vicar and Linda Ball. Triple R. I played footy years ago, uh, which I've spoken about. I used to play on the halfback flank. So I was I was in the back line. Mm-hmm. Chris Gill, you're more forward. And Daniel, you're more centre, would you say? Mm. Yeah. I'm always centre. Always. <laughs> always centred. Always centre. Ready to rumble. Yeah. I always used to get asked whenever I was playing, uh, which because there'll be two flanks, so one on either side of the ground. And the other flank would be like, Where do you, which side do you want? And I would always pick the side with the biggest crowd. Oh, wow. It's not because of your left, left foot or right, right foot. foot. No. no, I know. It, it should be. But oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and my brother was the same. My older brother, no, my younger brother. My older brother was the same. He's just like, which which plank do you prefer? I'm like, uh, the one with the biggest crowd. And he pressed that love and he goes, right? <laughs> and it would be so good if you did something brilliant and then, you know, you straight up you get all cheered, acknowledged, wonderful. Um, I did play school footy many years ago and we were playing up in Beaufort and all of Beaufort were there cheering for our, the team that we were playing uh, and I had the biggest one side of the ground was just packed there were all the grandstands and everything on one side other side empty so I'm like <laughs> that's my side <laughs> so I had the ball and I was running up the flank and I took a bounce and this is all the opposition so they are screaming they weren't cheering they were screaming get her <laughs> and I'm just like yeah give it a go and I took a second bounce oh, oh. And then I got tackled to the ground from behind. In front of the huge In crowd. Front of the crowd. Oh. oh, and I tell you, I haven't heard a crowd cheer like. Oh no! <laughs> like that. So you know, uh, it, it can be positive or negative. Uh, that was that was so bad. And then I had to stand up, put my hands up on the mark, and just everyone laughing and cheering. And it was, I guess that's what you get. Sometimes it's good. And occasionally, yeah. Yeah. you're going to get something bad. Um, but I did watch, uh, and and you know, not. I don't know many people that actually would choose a flank because of the crowd. Most people, like you said, Chris, would say, well, I'm a left footer. Only Chris Gill would not find that totally scandalous. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, in fact, like, so when I won the toss for the Community Cup and they say, which way do you want to kick? And I'm, like, pointing that way, not because of the wind, but because I want to kick to the big crowd in the last quarter. And we did. And what did we win? (laughs) Yes, we did. The vanity paid off. Oh, it surely did. I am the Warren Beatty <laughs> of uh, delicious callback. Yes. Yeah, I did love. That. So I wasn't at the community cup, but I watched the live stream when they had it on a few weeks later uh, on Channel Thirty One. And I mean, Chris, I'd heard a lot about you. Oh, I've seen it. a little bit of footage in previous years, but talk about a performer. I don't on the football field. Don't. And I mean, if you're I do, do, do. <laughs> if you're gonna be a performer like that and milk it up to the crowd, you have to be able to back it up. Yeah. And back it up, you did. Well, it was weird actually, because when I was on the field, and then the four Chris Gills walked on the field too, <laughs> like 
It's hard to like go, well, I'm in a footy game. We're playing footy and I'm going to... And then I'm like, oh, hang on, what? Wait a minute, these guys are copying whatever I'll do. (laughs) Right. So So is that like Saddam Hussein lookalikes to avoid... uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they had the wigs and they had the (laughs) super tight shorts. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, it was it was quite tough actually to sort of go, hang on, hang on, the ball's coming, but what should I get these guys to do? That's kind of funny. Yes. Mm. And I, I did a little sort of dance routine in the goal square, but I should have done a much more embarrassing dance routine oh, to make in them. the goal square. Yeah, yes. I know, but to enlist them in your, it's hard to flip the switch. Yeah, to perform and to perform. <laughs> Well, you, if anyone's doing it, it's you, I gather. So what what was your impression watching it from home in terms of uh, Chris's theatrics and, uh, you know, because you say you have to deliver. Is that necessary? So you, is the idea that if you're theatrical without being talented, you're just a goon? No, I mean, that could be funny as well. That could definitely be funny. I think anyone that actually tries to perform and do it to the crowd, if you fail, you know what, they gave it a go. But when you succeed mm. as well as being yeah. I mean, it is Magic just godlike. Moments. It really is. Yeah. Uh, no, and it was it was awesome to watch. If you're, How would you compare the feeling of, say, you're DJing at a gig with hundreds of people, thousands of people, whatever it is, uh, to kicking a goal at a community cup with thousands of people. What well, DJing doesn't quite get there. Doesn't? Okay. No, it's, 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 maybe it's a tight shorts. Maybe if I wore <laughs> tight shorts to DJing would be different. Yeah. But uh, I think, yeah, just kicking a sausage roll in front of, uh, let's say, 15,000. Yeah. yeah. Let's say 15,000. Uh, it is uh, incomparable, really. And then, like... What was it? Twenty nineteen, winning by one point yeah. was pretty good, but then winning by two points. <laughs> so, can you see why awesome. retired athletes often struggle terribly? Because that would be obviously addictive. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I remember growing up in the years of uh, you know the sort of the very theatrical, like Mark Jackson, yeah, who was who used to do the handstands and like and uh, and of course the Wiz Warwick Kappa, who a friend was uh, a Lions fan, was watching it with him at uh, at some pub on the weekend and just said he was still performing to this day. <laughs> right, like, really? You know, I mean, anyone who will listen, he'll yeah. tell them. Is it is it is Warwick Kappa not an inspiration, but uh, is he on your uh, what do they call it storyboard? What, what do people put oh, on their my mood board? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, he's always on everyone's mood board. Yeah, he is. Uh, he, uh, you know, because sport is entertainment. Yeah, I mean, it, it's nothing more than entertainment, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those that actually do. Add the entertainment. I, I think of super special people because Definitely. they do put themselves out on the line. Like that poor young Collingwood kid, like Ginevan, who, I mean, you know, he sort of, yeah, he he poked a lot of bears, actually. Mm-hmm, yeah. and, and he's sort of paying for it now, which is tragic because, you know, it's, it's what happens when you put yourself out on the line. A lot of people can sort of get back at you, mm. but it's actually what we really want is oh. people to stand out, and we really want people to entertain us. Yeah, Eddie Betts did it really good. Whenever he would, and because he wasn't always, he's not always like that. But when he was on and he'd kick a goal, just the fact that he would go to the crowd, just like hell yeah, yeah I'm the best. When yeah, he, he's yeah, not like yeah. that personality-wise any other time, except for when he's kicking goal from the pocket at Adelaide Oval. Then yeah, everyone just. Loves him. Yeah. I like the attitude. Yeah, you're putting on a show. 
and owning up to that transaction. Mm. What? Where do you do you have a view on tall poppy? Does it happen? Do Do you think it's something that is in the Australian character, or where do you? I don't want to drag you into yeah. a conversation you don't want to have, but is, is where do you stand on the tall poppy syndrome, given that you are unashamed tall poppy? Well, I'm a tall Paul. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's sad that that happens a bit. And I think, uh, yeah, we've just got to give people a bit more, uh, I don't know, a bit more room yep. to be freaky. To be themselves, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. It. Oh, it's so thrilling. And part of that, I suppose, is the appeal, watching someone be unabashedly their own self mm. and expand with, you know, joy and talent. And people cheer it because it's it, that's the show. Like that's humanity it. at its finest. You love to see mm. it exactly. Uh, but yeah, there's. I mean, then you got people who know. You know, you watch Chris Gill on football fields. Like, well, that's what you know what you should be doing, but. Chris can actually do it. Yes. And you, Bobby, obviously. Yeah, well, I, I missed out on playing, so I'm just going to be all talk for the rest of my life, and then, I think. And then that second <laughs> next bounce. Year, next year, yeah, You know when you took that bounce? Because I admire that second bounce. Oh, yeah. I, I like that you went for that second bite of the sour cherry or whatever, <laughs> and it blew up in your face. I got sucked in big time, and it absolutely blew up in my face. But no regrets. I think you got to experience both the good and the bad. I mean, absolutely regrets. I should have blown <laughs> What an idiot. What a bloody idiot. <laughs> But it is it is important though, and always, Bobby, always go for that second bounce, <laughs> please. Melbourne's own Triple R. Bill Bailey is an actor, comedian, author, charity walker, and Strictly Come Dancing champion who, for decades, has toured globally with his stand-up shows, including Part Troll, Tinsel Worm, Quam Peddler, and Limbo Land. And he's back in Australia with his latest En Route to Normal on a Palais this October. And to tell us about it, the Black Books and QI Star joins us now. Bill, absolutely awesome to have you back in the Triple R Studios. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, were Border Security gentle? Uh, they were. In fact, I barely noticed it. Oh, good. Uh, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Now, I, I read that you uh, travel with uh, your own coffee machine. Is that is that true? Have you brought coffee machine well, to Australia? you say machine. I think oh, that's right. doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Uh, I'd say it's more of like, it's like a hand press. Yeah. So it's not like I haven't, <laughs> I haven't got a flight case with a great big sort of espresso machine. Yeah. Here. Although, you know, now you mention it. <laughs> Why not? Uh, that sounds like a great idea. No, it's like a... It's a, it's it's called an AeroPress. Um, you know, it's, this is not this is not a paid uh, <laughs> uh, item at all. I just like it. Um, it's literally just a, it's so low tech. I love it. Mm. You know, you you have a little basket and you put a little one filter on. You screw it to the bottom of the thing. You put your coffee in. Hey, presto. It yeah. means that you can get decent coffee wherever you are. As long as you've got a kettle, access to a kettle. Well, well that's right. Wasn't the AeroPress invented by a frisbee maker? Am I am I really? imagining that? I think so. The wow. aerobit, yeah. He was like a, a throwing disc. Sorry, not frisbees. Uh, and yeah, now and now he's a right. coffee guy. He was thinking, how can I get some more <laughs> sort of value out of this? Can I drink out of this? <laughs> can thing? I drink out of yeah? Actually, now a frisbee-sized coffee filter. Now you're talking. There we go. I bring wow. it up because I suppose Melbourne is inordinately proud of our coffee making yes. skills. Of course. Um, and I'm, you know, on behalf of the baristas locally, uh, I just, you know, I, I want to pitch to you their wares. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I think the thing is this: uh, this where the coffee machine that, that you of which you mentioned uh, comes into its own is where 
I'm not in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I'm not in the Melbourne, which is because, you know, you, you can't, you know, you can't go far you, mm. without getting a decent coffee. In fact, I've just had a decent coffee here. So, so yeah, it's, it's for the places where, you know, a decent coffee might be a little tricky to yeah. uh, procure. Uh, now, did you spend a large chunk of lockdown over seeing or looking back at your own material and oeuvre? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, one of the sort of, um, I think a lot of people, you know, spent that time in a kind of reflective um, state of mind. And um, I found myself going through doing one of those jobs, you know, when you, I better just archive a lot of this stuff, you know, that's just building up in my shed. Yeah. And by going through all that stuff, it's interesting. I think sometimes you take stock of where you are and what kind of material you've done and and uh, so that was um, a, a quite an interesting project that then led to a book about happiness because a lot of my material was all about, you know, the, the nature of happiness, the pursuit of it, what it is, uh, how do you quantify it, how do you describe it. And, uh, and I, it's, it sort of feeds my ongoing obsession with this sort of UN thing about, you know, the, the happiness index, the global happiness index, which seems to sort of such a sort of arbitrary kind of way of quantifying a country mm. you know, how do you calibrate it what what criteria by yeah. what criteria are you are you judging this thing australia always seems to do very well by the way along with the scandinavian countries so it's something um maybe it's coffee maybe that's <laughs> it <could> it. <laughs> some countries have a minister for happiness as well which seems yes. like an unusual brief that's right yes we had one briefly <laughs> oh right but uh, see, very 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 lugubrious yeah <laughs> sort of character what did you? Uh, what were some of the impressions going back? Did you recognise yourself? Were you like, gee, actually, I'm, I'm really funny. Or, or you know, <laughs> did you surprise yourself? Yeah, yeah, I had that. Uh, yeah, I'd get that a lot. No, uh, I, I think what what surprised me was the variety, the the kind of breadth of of subject matter, which I, I, I still was. I was quite sort of taken aback by. I was like, you know, the the, the most sort of you know, I. I I tend to kind of get a subject and go down the rabbit hole with it quite quite a big in a big way and that, that I suppose reminded me very much about how I why I got into comedy I suppose in the first place which was like you know finding comedy in the in the sort of stranger parts of our world and you know looking at the kind of absurdities of, of our daily life and, and and so that really was was quite a a, a mind and revelation and it also made it was quite sort of interesting that you know you, it feeds that idea of what the creative process is about you know like and, and where does comedy come from you know? mm. so it, it was it was a it was good it was a very sort of productive um exercise yeah does any rabbit hole do, no rabbit hole goes to waste no no in some way i try and find a way of of co-opting any kind of subject that i'm talking about and finding a way to get into the show um you know, like, uh, say, for example, in this current show that I'm doing, I've, I've, I've got an obsession with ragtime music um, because ragtime is, was the sort of precursor to jazz, and jazz was the music that grew out of the last global pandemic, you know, the, the so-called Spanish flu. So there was a decade of hedonism and innovation and creativity that was powered, a lot of it was by jazz. Mm. But jazz was itself kind of instigated by ragtime, and ragtime is a kind of was a sort of musical mockery of European sort of rather rigid march music and it added that sort of uh, African syncopation to this so it was a kind of I, I realized what ragtime is is what I do you know and that is to sort of celebrate and mock something at the same time yeah. so it kind of it, it that's that's one of my many rabbit holes <laughs> 
we we don't have strictly come dancing. Although, of course, we've seen you uh, your incredible performances. We do have dancing with the stars, yes. and we have. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And yes. often what happens is a comedian will return from that and they find their audience has, uh, well, there are new audience members. Yes. Uh, whereas I gather maybe Australia and Melbourne in particular, will the crowds will be full of Bill Bailey purists. Yes, I think so. That's right. I think what I've done is I've gradually sort of filtered them out <laughs> over the years. You know, like sort of when I first came to Australia, you know, I was like, I, I was doing a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and uh, and and I was in the front row and there was I just looked at these people and I thought these don't look they don't look like my fans I mean I'm glad they're here yeah. but they look like they've kind of blundered in <laughs> by mistake and so it turned out you know because I was doing I was doing something about I did ten minutes about Heisenberg and the uncertainty theorem and they just looked a bit discombobulated <laughs> by the whole thing and then they all got up and walked out and I said oh, excuse me sorry have I said something to offend you and the bloke said. No, sorry, so sorry. We thought you were the juggler. <laughs> and uh, and I and I went, oh, and I said, but they really stuck it out for like 10, 15 minutes. And I, <laughs> Any and I was, minute now, the balls are coming out. Yeah, exactly. There was like he's, you know, they're nudging each other. This isn't juggling. What's he doing? And then the guy's going, you know, no, he's it's a new form of meta juggling. He's juggling with ideas, concepts. That I must be that. And then. <laughs> And then afterwards they realise, no, he's not going to, either. I go to the guitar and they'd be like, he's picking up the guitar, here we go. Come on then, he's going to put it on his chin in a minute. Oh no, no he hasn't. So, but now, now, now we've, we've, I've moved on yeah. from those days. What about the fitness regimen? Is that, have you sustained that? Do you know what, um, actually I have, only because uh, it, it was, um, I mean, just briefly dip into the dance uh, odyssey that I went on. It's incredibly hard, very, very tough. The training is is extraordinary. And so, but I loved, you know, being a bit fitter and, you know, I I do a lot of walking, cycling. So I have, yeah, I've kept it on, definitely. Yeah. Uh, And I also read that maybe in preparation for a show, you'll sit in the theatre to maybe get a sense of what it would be like watching... Bill Bailey. De- definitely. What are some things that you notice in theatres that are reliably wrong or should fix or what makes a good theatre experience? The Palais is outstanding. Yes, it is. And and I think that, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic venue and I'm, I'm so happy to be there. Um, and I've I, I played there once a few times before, but it's. Uh, I think there's something about the atmosphere of a place that you pick up on. Mm. You pick up on the kind of, it's in the walls of a place, you know, the atmosphere, who's played there before, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the great nights that have happened there over the years. Something of that lingers in a, the fabric of a building, I think. And uh, you, you tend to pick up on that a little bit when you're in the... And I also, I mean, it's a practical thing as well. Like you, you sit in every part of the auditorium and go, can I see from here? <laughs> you know, can I hear? Is this, What are the sight lines? What's the chair like? Are people going to be sitting there for like an hour going, oh, you know, I really happy to just get on with it. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. really uncomfortable. You know, so there's a lot of those factors that sort of play into it as well. Do you tour with all your instruments or is there someone local that has a horn machine or whatever you've got going on? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yes, it, unfortunately, the sort of things I tour with, 
you can't sort of procure them really at a short notice or at all mm. uh, in any way that you go. I mean, most of the time, the keyboards tend to be quite generic, so I'm able to pick those up generally, you know, guitars and such like. Um, but yes, I mean, a, you know, an electric oud is not something you can really kind of, you know, pick up from your local guitar hire. Yeah, yeah. You know, or, um, a, you know, a, a three-strung Turkish Saz bazooki hybrid is not something that... <laughs> You know, you could ask for, and um, and I've got also, a, you know, a, a, a digitized theremin, and a um, a handpan, and a mandola, and a Bible, Jesus and various great. other things. So you can't really pick these up. So, uh, no, uh, I had a friend who got into oud during lockdown, and oh, really? yeah, it was a real, it was a real, uh, you know, huge thing getting it sent from somewhere, and you know, having to send the money to someone's friend in Turkey who was going to send it to somebody else. And, right. And oh. it showed up in a big wooden box. So, wow. you know, if you've got six months, we could get you an oud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hang right. around. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll book the oud in for the next tour. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so on route to normal, we're talking normal out of the absolute abnormality we've all experienced. Yes, mm. that's right. And uh, I think that was, you know, that's how the, the sort of title really began, really. It was partly that and partly the sort of the strange inversion of what I imagined the future to be when I was a kid, you know, this sort of this this sense of that the world is 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 sort of progressing and becoming more normalised, and there won't be any more wars, and there'll be you know there'll be no more uh, sort of um, you know financial kind of uh, you know strangeness or eccentricity. That's when countries will gradually normalise, and of course that you realise that's just patently not true, and mm. that you know you're in a state of flux constantly, and that. And then you'd start to think, well, what is normal? What is, what is the actual, what is a norm? How do we even quantify that? What is it? And really, it's about, yeah, a search for some sort of meaning. And like, there must be something in all of this, you know. And I try and further the strands of it that sort of weave through the show. Mm. You're obviously very busy in lockdown. I suppose you didn't perform at one of Boris Johnson's lockdown parties. And, of course, now you have a... <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> yeah, that we know of. <laughs> that we know of, yeah. Uh, but was one the... of his children <laughs> yeah, that, we, yes. that he knows of. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so... The UK did it. Did it have a a similar experience across the the land? Because Australia, we and I, I wonder if, as an outsider, but very who's very familiar with Australia, yeah. if you'll pick up on a different attitudes depending on what Definitely. state you're in. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I mean, from what I know, I mean, I've just talked to people and friends, of, you know, who in Australia saying it was quite, you know, you, you, of course, you have a federal system here, which is which is completely different to the UK. Where it's just you know we have we have four countries, <laughs> just sort of like you know with wildly different. They all had their own different COVID policies, yeah. and so that when it first started to happen in London, London was kind of the epicenter of it. The rest of the country was a bit sort of sceptical about the whole thing. You know, we had friends up in the north who were saying these, oh, it's all been blown up in the media. It's just a big media. It's all London. You know, it won't go around. It, it won't go outside the M25. You know? And then of course you know well it didn't turn out so well, but. Definitely, I think so. I think there were different attitudes, different, um, and eventually, I think the, the, the what what united the whole country was an absolute uh, the the kind of the 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 outrage of what was going on in Number Ten Downing Street. I mean, that's really the unifying sort of feature of the last year and two years yeah. is seeing the sight of these politicians just telling us to stay indoors and don't go out and mm. don't you can't do this and fines if you you know you go to the park and if you know you'll be out twice in the same day for exercises right that's a fine you know 
I mean, two people were out walking on the Yorkshire Dales and they were followed by a drone, you know. I mean, it was just, just sort of absurd yeah. nonsense going on. And then they, they were all, like, laughing up their sleeves, you know, glugging back the Prosecco, dancing. They had a party at number 10 that got out of hand so badly, a door came off its hinges, right? You're thinking, what the hell were they doing in there? I mean, I've been, you know, I've been to student parties that were less rowdy, for God's sake. So, yes, anyway, um, yes, uh, I'll, I'll definitely be picking up on that. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to ask, finally, you, you've recently walked a very long way uh, to raise money in honour of your genius friend, uh, Sean Locke. I was wondering about that, and did you listen to anything? Oh, you mean music-wise? Yeah. Uh, when I was walking? Yeah. Ah, yes. Um, uh, I, I kind of... Um, Sean was actually... Um, uh, uh, he, was, he, he loved uh, dub, uh, so I, I'd, uh, I, I had a few dub albums I'd put on in his memory. Um, I've, one of them was Scientist Dub of the Ghetto, which was uh, which I used in my show as in the interval music, and uh, and also I, I listened to that, and I listened to um, uh, a lot of uh, Norse uh, Viking folk metal, uh, which is of course a bit, I'm a big fan of, and I found that to be quite comforting <laughs> because it's sort of it's. Uh, the, the particular band I was listening to was Wardruna, and if you get a chance, have a good have a listen to them because the music is quite immersive. They use a lot of natural sounds. They they sample ravens and birds, and they they sample the sounds of footsteps in in uh, water. They sample waterfalls, wind, sound, the elements, and they sort of blend that with traditional instruments, traditional string instruments, drums, and chanting, and these wonderful sort of songs which are about the elements and about sort of Nordic, Norse history and runic history. And uh, they're sort of, they're, they're incredibly immersive, almost like cinematic soundscapes. We have so many shows on Triple R that I think you'd get a kick out of. Uh, <laughs> with all the metal and the dub, and we would cater to you, I reckon. It would be great to see if Bill Bailey had a show on this station. <laughs> uh, now, you are touring En Route to Normal. The shows are at the Palais Theatre, October 20, 21, 22, 23. Head to ticketmaster.com.au. I suppose you've got some time to go to some zoos or whatever the, you might uh, get up yes, to in the tourist moths. sense. That's my latest obsession. Moths? Yes. Hell yeah. Cool. Hope we're bringing the moth magic for you. Uh, so please catch Bill Bailey as he tours en route to normal and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Tad Pop, we were having a little bit of chat off air and I thought we'd, let's bring it on air. Uh, and just talking about growing up, you grew up in the goldfields, uh, I grew up in country as well and one of the things that I quite enjoyed about living in the country, uh, other than the freedom and, and I, I guess back when I was growing up there was less technology, so I was very outdoorsy, uh, do lots of, say bushwalking, you know what we used to call it? We did this thing called river raiding. Uh, It was a cool name. Tell me if you've heard of this or if this is just something that we made up. It sounds like something we may have done. So we would start, so I grew up in Blackwood and we um, would start at the Mineral Springs and so there was a river that would go through um, the towns uh, and then we would go through the river all the way to the cricket field so you could walk mm. uh, and it might be say three kilometers but it's half the distance in the water but you would yeah. have to swim in the water and there was some parts of it that was just mud but god but by the time you got to the cricket fields you'd be clean because you, you would have just washed, washed off it everything off. Yeah. yeah and it would be summertime so then we would all come out and then you'd be at the cricket field where they'd have events and everything uh, God, it was fun. I think of it now and because there was this bridge that we used to go over that went between Blackwood and Trentham mm. 
and just the overgrown bushes. And like yeah. you look over the bridge and it looks like a horror movie. Yeah. And we would go through this. Oh, my God. It, it, like, at times it would be scary, but you know when other people do it, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll give it a go. I'll do that. Well, um, you don't want to look like you're scared. Well, of course not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just put yourself in a, in a dangerous situation and, and deal yeah. with it later. Yeah. Um, but we used to have, and I've spoken about it, the Blackwood Easter Carnival, and that was the biggest thing. It was a wood chopping event. Uh, we love had... wood chopping. You do? I love it. Really? Do yeah. you do it? No. Okay. Uh, when I, you know, to for the fire. Well, that's it. It's yeah. just a part of your regular routine. Well, not now, but when okay. I was growing up. Yeah. yeah. We used to do it as well. One of the things we had to do is we'd have to go out and get the wood yep. rather than, I mean, you could buy wood, but Dad would be like, why would you buy wood? We would never buy wood. Yeah. Dad would take me and my brother out to paddocks and mm. people that he knew out to the bush and we would spend the day chopping wood. Yeah. The day? Yeah. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yep, that's how I learnt to drive. Oh, really? When I was probably 12 or something. He said, get in the ute and show me how to do the gears because he said, you know, what if we're out chopping wood and mm. I break my leg and you have to drive me to hospital? That nice. was his, his wow. logic there. Yeah. Uh, how'd you reach the pedals? Was it easy? That's what I was going to ask, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, when I was 12, I'm the height I am. I was the height I am now. Yeah, right. Oh, right. So, yeah. <laughs> and the, how long till you got the hang of it? Pretty quick? Oh, a couple of drives. Okay, no kangaroo hopping and... Um, no, I was pretty good. Probably because at that age I didn't have, you know, I didn't really know lack of confidence in yeah. If your dad goes mm. getting and drive, you go, okay. Do you have a wood chopping yeah. technique that we should know about? The, just a tip when we're doing it that makes things easier and more efficient, given that you've done so much of it? Um, I... Uh, it takes a while to hit in the same spot all the yeah, time. Yeah, mm. of course. That takes a lot of pain out of it. It's quite hitting the same spot so that you just, you know, split yeah. it quicker. It's quite a dangerous uh, thing to learn as you go, isn't it? Mm. As like a 12-year-old or a kid growing up in the country. But again, you're like, meh, they eh. told me to do it, I'll yes. do it. Yes. Because exactly. you'd, you'd have a splitter and then you'd have an axe. Mm. So the the splitter wouldn't kill you as much I guess no, that's right. it's, it's not as terrifying as an axe whereas like you have the wood chopping events and they've yeah. got axes that they're mm. chopping through the wood and they're so sharp and if you slip I mean you'll lose a toe or whatever do we get yep. to the bottom of river running oh I think so I was just I... so it's running along the well it's it's running into it's just getting from a to b but through the river and do, you, do parents know and go look I know, but there's nothing we can do and it's ultimately good for them or did they not care? Like, is it benign neglect? A little from column A, a little from column B. I think so. I don't know that we explicitly told our folks anything that we did. We kind of just left and were gone for hours and then would come home for dinner. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you were home for dinner, I think that was okay. Yeah, we we hung out with cousins. They lived in Heathkit first and then went to Kangaroo Flat. But in Heathkit, oh, my God, I remember there was like a mob of kids we just roam the paddocks, go through the bush, come back at, you know, when it was getting dark. Yeah. And the parents are, you know, drinking beers and <laughs> we're like, we're back. And they're like, okay, here's your snags. You know, and there was one time we 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 set up a little um, like table and chairs under the house. Oh, cool. Um, it was great. It yeah. was like another house, like under the house. Yeah. And we had our... And then one day um, we were doing that and our parents went, oh, my God, where are the kids? I don't know why they even thought where, you know, to look. And they didn't know where we were. So my dad 
jumped. I'm telling you all my stories about my dad today. <laughs> Hopefully he's not listening. Um, and he jumped in the car and was driving around the bush looking and he got a speeding fine from the cops. <gasps> no, that's not fair. I know. <laughs> he was so wild with us. That's <laughs> seriously unfair. Yeah. Would the, did the cops, did, did they not believe him? Uh, I don't know. I mean, so I'm looking for my kids. Yeah. But then he comes back and we just come out from under the house going hi and they're like, where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been under the house. So you didn't know that they were looking for no. you or you, you went no sitting idea. there giggling? No. Okay. We, have, we were oblivious. We were just, you know, having doing whatever we were doing under yeah. the house. I mean, I've hidden knowing that people are looking for me because it's a, it, you, want to, you want to observe how much uh, they love you. You want to see the panic in their eyes and the fear in their. It's like it's like going to your own funeral and seeing them mourn. Uh, yeah, and you, there you are hiding under a coat of a rack of coats in mire or whatever. While and then you're like, surprise! Yeah. And you expect them to go, "Oh my god, I missed you so much." Yeah. Are you okay? But it's just grab your hand, get in the back of the car. Yeah, what the hell have you been? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, now, goldfields. Is it? Is there any risk of falling through down a shaft? Yeah. Right. Heaps. Okay. Still now to this day. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and a lot of them, I suppose, are unmarked or. Yep. Yeah. So many. Okay. And and did you get any warnings about that, or you just have to find that on your own? Oh, I think you get familiar with the ones that you walk past all the time. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You just learn by falling in, I guess, <laughs> and then hopefully <laughs> getting out. In, yeah. But dogs fall down them a lot. Damn. You see that in the local paper quite a bit. Right. Yeah. And so no, obviously, yeah, no looking at your phone while you're walking. Like each step <laughs> is important. No. Well, back then there were No, naturally. Yeah, these days as well. But, um, but yeah, not now. Yeah. And so and when you go out, you're not actually setting out for anything. You're just a bunch of kids just exploring. Oh, yeah, although you might have a little agenda for the day. Oh, yeah. We used to go out and um, build huts out of... The, you know, big branches and stuff. Yeah, Did you yeah. do that, Bobby? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So you would, you know, there might be, like school holidays, you know, went for a million years. Didn't they? Yes. <laughs> so we would, um, you get up in the morning and have your wheat bix and be like, all right, let's go and finish off that hut that we started yesterday. I think we're the same person. I had yeah. wheat bix. <laughs> yeah. And did, did the hut ambition uh, come organically or was there like a tadpole agenda? <laughs> And then everyone got into line. Um, no, it was pretty collaborative. Okay. Um, Do you reckon some of the huts are still there? Uh, possibly some of the better built ones. Yeah. yeah. But there are lots of new ones pop up all the time. You know, you go walking through the bush and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good one. Oh, yeah. they've gone done well there. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're <sighs> kind of everywhere. It's exciting. It is mm. exciting. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's like Huckleberry Finn. I'm joined by two Huckleberry Finns here. <laughs> I mean, well, I know. I look back now and look at what my kids do, which is not what I did when I was a kid. Yeah. They're not as adventurous and carefree. Although I guess now kind of society is more like, oh, my God, that's dangerous. Oh, of course. Yes. You know, mm. but we didn't really, I mean... No kids that I knew died. No, yeah. Of, of you know falling in a hole or whatever. Mm. Yeah, we got them out. We got on with it. It's yeah. hard <laughs> enough. Finished off the hunt. Triple <laughs> R. Marie Carty is a beloved writer of books, TV, and champion of the arts. Who was a former breakfaster, and from 1996, along with Paulie P and Glennie G, hosted the iconic Triple R show, Best of the Brat. And to tell us about her journey and Triple R's place in her heart, the uh, iconic 
woman of letters joins us now. Marie, welcome back to Breakfasters. <laughs> I could have listened to that introduction forever. It was kind of like, like, this is your life. And then I got reminded about all the times I was naked in that studio because the best of the best of the brat did a strip-a-thon every year for oh, Radiothon where we took off an article of clothing for every subscriber to our oh, show. Wow. And we this is an OH&S nightmare. It wouldn't happen now, and I think for very good reason. And probably pre-camera phones as well, which is an even better reason, which really puts a timestamp on it. But we'd basically enter the studio looking like the Michelin man, like layers and layers and layers of like take off one glove and one piece of jewellery. And I tell you what, there's there's some olfactory memories that stay with you. And that room of kind of terrified, sweaty, naked people crammed in, it really stays with you. Like when you go to an abattoir and you leave and the rest of your life, you can like, I can smell death forever that's what it was like being naked in that studio but it was fabulous and so many happy memories and the friends we made along the way as we were naked yes exactly oh. well this building used to be a pantyhose factory is that right as well so <laughs> continuing the we tradition were naked also way. at the old at the old we've been naked in every triple i at yes. the old street address as well which is where Paulie P, who still does live wire now and is one of my dearest friends, and Glennie G, we're all still very close. It's it's wonderful. But we met doing the Triple R production course at Victoria Street like 26 years ago. And to I've not only timestamped with the nudie camera phone thing, but we did Vox Pops as part of the production course, and you still had to slice the audio together and sticky tape it. That's how we cut it together in the old cutting machine. Oh, my gosh. The effort that made it sound like no effort went in. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. We Mm. were lazy. Come on, that's rude. Well, I mean, you did. uh, Tell us about Celebrity Ruda. I mean, maybe you don't want to, but (laughs) I I have fond memories. Me too. And look, honestly, Paul and Glenn and I did that absolutely wild-ass show for 12 years on Triple R. It was just the most beautiful, chaotic growing up uh, on air. And, I mean, that is the beautiful thing about we we met in the production course. We did graveyards for years. We just kind of, like, fostered this sense of what it was to work on radio and what it was to not get sued being on radio, which is a lesson (laughs) you sometimes learn the long way. But we did this segment called Celebrity Rooter where we asked people, bands, musicians, famos, to come and play us their top five rooting songs. <laughs> it was like, I know, it was classic. My, my parents have so much to be proud of to this day. It's um, that it was songs either that were good to go to bed to or that they, you know, had intimate times with. Some people picked their own music. Quan from Regurgitator played Sex by the Next, which went for, I think, 52 minutes and half of the show. Wow. Um, what do we mean they, we picked, had... they picked their own music? Like they're putting on one of their own songs yeah, some people oh, did that, and it really tells you a lot about them. You know, you're just like, they're like, I think this song would be great to have sex to, and you're like, you mean your song? And they're like, yeah, I just put it on once, and my partner was really receptive. I'm like, bloody tickets. <laughs> um, but we did, like, Kings of Leon did it. The, the bemusement in some of the international bands, the Strokes, Nick Valencia from the Strokes, who is one of the most offensively physically beautiful men I've ever had the fortune of sitting opposite, and he picked um, Sir Mix-a-Lot's 
Baby Got Back was one of his songs. <laughs> and how the White Stripes did it when they were still pretending that they were brother and sister. <laughs> and we interviewed them upstairs at the tote before the old tote was a, was a bar upstairs. And Jack White said, because we're related, we don't want to talk about sex. We just want to talk about our favourite top five songs. Oh, and boring. we said, oh, well, I, I said, whatever you want, Jack White. <laughs> Yeah, babe. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was amazing. We've got all these Polaroids. I keep trying to make Paul digitise them because we have Polaroids of me with some very fashionable fashion choices there at, um, you know, midnight on a Thursday night. But we, we took Polaroids of every band that we interviewed and it went for years and years. It was amazing. Oh, I remember Brett from Interpol. Did I make that up? Uh, maybe that was another. No, not Brett from Interpol. It was the, oh, what, now you're going to. Oh, it, it... It was the guy, yeah, the lead guy from Interpol, and it was that interview is apparently transcribed from Interpol fans somewhere. It's got this like worldwide celebrity because we just took the absolute Mickey out of him, and he loved it. Like he did some lols, like it was kind of like we cheered up the guy from Interpol, and everyone thought that was very funny. <laughs> um, but there, I mean, you and the show really. And, you know, your tenure as a breakfast really embodied the sort of, like, intelligent irreverence that was just so <laughs> addictive. I'm glad you said that after I debased myself by talking about nudity <laughs> and a segment called Celebrity Rooter. Yes, I bought the intellect. <laughs> um, no, but it was like, so, and it, so my very short time on Breakfasters, which was amazing, and the most unlikely trio of me, John Safran and Dave O'Neill. I mean, like, those names you go, oh, together at last. Like, what a weird combination of people. And, of course, like, formed my long-time love of, of Safran and his amazing brain. And we used to play Risk together because we were, you know, cool guys. And then even talking to Michael Williams, another one of my dearest friends, we were just spending the weekend together at the inaugural Dunkeld Writers Festival and we were talking about his time as a breakfaster and he was working with Sam Pang and all these amazing people. Like, Michael's now editing The Monthly and... Sam's like impressing everyone at the Logies by being irreverent and a little bit wicked. Like it's, it's just nuts. The most incredible people have passed through those doors and that sense of community and walking back through there is just always there every time you go back. Yeah. Why do you reckon it's important for people to subscribe to the station to, for that culture to continue? Well, I mean, I mean, you just kind of said it all for that culture to continue and for those, you know, amazing brains to have the chance to be chaotic in a graveyard and learn what it is to not get defamed by uh, three three AW nearly sued us once. That's a long story. I won't Aww. go into it. <laughs> Young still has fever dreams about it, but it was like the three AW overnighters versus Triple R graveyarders, and thankfully it didn't go any further, which is great. But we got the chance to grow up there. We got the chance to to mess up and freak out and cry and learn, and most importantly, we got to play the music that we wanted to play. And that is not having worked at other radio stations that I won't mention right now. Mm. And as a music lover, that's a total gift to kind of showcase bands that you love, some kind of like digger and the Pussycats or some like kind of wild little Melbourne pub band that you can introduce from your heart to Triple R listeners who are also huge music lovers. And that's this beautiful sharing arrangement. I learned about so much music there. I made out with a lot of musicians that were on our show. <laughs> because I, I Don't spread that rumour. It doesn't happen with every breakfast, I promise. <laughs> it does. It's part of the contract. If they don't see that, you've got to change your contract. <laughs> You know, you'd go to live gigs and you'd meet other people from Triple R there and it's just like, it's 
the culture is a huge part of it, you're right, Dan, but as a music lover and when I got to do Phil's and other people's music show and just play three hours of music, what a bloody gift at all times. So if that's not enough of a reason, I don't know what is. That's right. And it's been a lifeline, especially for the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's it, we all know how important radio is and you think about the the – the voice of ABC during things like bushfires, which people, you know, in rural areas turn to, and Triple R is this kind of heart of Melbourne's arts and music and culture community. And it is, we all, arts, live arts has been, you know, I've talked about it on your show before, just decimated these last two years and is still very bruised. It's still, I went to two, I went to an MTC and Malthouse show last week and it was not full. And I think the arts is still really struggling. Better off said we're still putting that on every month, but there's no guarantee. Every month it's different in terms of people buying tickets and, you know, we need to pay our artists and we want to keep encouraging that. So culture and arts is needed to be supported more than ever. Mm. What if there's someone listening? Uh, Just imagine this for a second. I can't believe it could possibly be true, but there's someone listening who's not a subscriber. What would you say to them? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm the granddaughter of a communist and the word scab comes up. You know. <laughs> We're told, uh, one of my first plays, I was told never to cross a picket line. That was one of my things. And if you're listening, if you're soaking up all this joy and banter and in- information and music for free, who do you think you are? <laughs> Back. <laughs> and you know, like I've actually, you know, Dad, I I DM'd you because I love you guys so much. My actually husband, I got married six weeks ago, so oh, I'm still getting used to using that term, but it's awesome. But we're living in Newcastle at the moment because he's studying here, and we listen to you guys on the live, um, live on the laptop every morning, and we feel like we're in Melbourne, and you guys all sound like you love each other and it's a sense of community. <laughs> if you don't like each other, you do a really good job of covering it up because it sounds like genuinely fun and laughy, and I'm like. They just love each other so much. And that's not guaranteed in breakfast radio no, either. No. Oh, my goodness. And that's a hellscape of three hours every morning. <laughs> but you guys, you're just this beautiful, warm, lovely, making each other laugh. And when Dan does a big shriek laugh right before a song, it's really glorious. <laughs> and you all do, like, brave news stories and you do all the pronunciations and it's just awesome. So, like, we love feeling like we're still in Melbourne listening to you guys every day. Oh, that means the world. Thank you, Marie. It really, the station attracts the best people and uh, that's why we need to subscribe to keep it going. Congratulations on your new status as a wife and that is... Thank you. It's a very short introduction for next time. (laughs) Yeah! Please welcome wife, Marie. Yeah, great, awesome. Uh, uh -uh rr.org.au. Thanks for all that you do and we'll chat soon. Love you guys, thanks. That's right, Triple R. We, when I was younger, we um, used to hang out at our cousin's place. I think I've spoken about these cousins before. They, I won't say a bad influence. We had a lot of fun with them. Uh, they lived up in Mombolk. Uh, and we went, we used to play on a, a handmade go-kart. Wow. And that so, safe. safe. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, and we were all aged between, I don't know, eight to 15, I guess. And uh, we would go down this mountain. So in Mombok, it's very hilly. Uh, and the only way that you could go, because it didn't have a motor or anything, like it wasn't that uh, fancy, but you would go downhill. Uh, it also didn't have brakes. So that <laughs> what was. What could the- go wrong? <laughs> 
That was the fun part. So it was made out of, you literally just have a plank of wood um, and then two wheels at the front and you would have rope that was attached to the wheels at the front. So that's how you would steer going left or right. Um, nothing around it. So if you crashed, you just, you fell right out. Uh, and that would be how you would stop. You just have to turn quickly and perhaps do a roll down a hill. Uh, we got so many cuts and bruises. We got injured, so, thankfully nothing serious, just lots and lots of cuts and bruises. Uh, and every time we'd come home, we'd be carrying the go-kart, but God, we had fun. Uh, I remember mum just looking like, what happened? Who, who did this to you? <laughs> who has hurt you? And we're like, no, 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 we just need to wash it up and get a Band-Aid and we'll be fine. Uh, and just telling her that, no, this was self-inflicted. We, we were playing on this go-kart. Uh, then one year, we went to our cousins and they got this, they made an even bigger go-kart so you could fit two people on it and instead of a rope, they had an actual steering wheel. This was chaos. But because they had an upgraded one, they gave us the old one. Oh, yeah. They're like, this is yours. It was... The greatest gift we have, my two brothers and I, actually my younger brother was too young. He, I think he was a toddler, so he wasn't allowed in the thing. Um, but my brother and I were just thrilled. Parents, not so much. They kept saying that we, we can't fit it in the boot. It won't fit in the boot. We're like, put it in the back seat with us. <laughs> it will not fit in the, it did fit in the back seat with us. It had some of it poking out the window and we were completely squashed, but we made sure that we got it and we got it home. And we played with that until it broke. We, we, we spent weeks playing with it. We were so popular hanging out. It was we were living in Preston at the time, so there weren't as many hills as there were in Mombok, so we had to kind of make our own uh, fun in pushing us through it uh, and just finding places, skate parks that we could actually take this to. Uh, made lots of friends who wanted to join in and jump on these things, but once again, it was the most dangerous and, well, no, I, th I just think it was the most dangerous thing that we've ever had, but God, it was yeah. fun. Did you brand it? How did you make it yours? Uh, well, the our cousins had their name that they had text with Texter and they had put it on one of the sides. Um, so we just, I guess you just get a Texter and that's what you do. And so yeah. we just wrote our names on it, drew a couple skulls as you do. <laughs> oh, <course>. look out. <laughs> <laughs> and that was us. But God, we had fun. Uh, it broke and we didn't do anything. I, I think our parents were thrilled. Did it break or did your parents sabotage it? <laughs> no, no, it, it was a road accident when uh. it broke. And we were put, there were two of us who were on it at the time and we literally went into a gutter and it had too many bumps. Uh, we fell over and it broke so we had to take it back in pieces and yeah, mum and dad were thrilled. So the way to break is to just slowly curve. Yes. And which rarely happens. I mean ultimately you crash and fall out. Oh, we fell out every single time. Yeah. So the, the idea was to do it on the nature strip but you didn't always land on the nature strip. So, you, yeah, just mm. like I said, so many grazes. Think about hills or living on a hill. I know someone who lived on a hill for so uh, that was so steep they never learned to ride a bike. Well, indeed, that's an impediment. Mm. Yeah, you, you don't get that benefit. Of no, the... because, yes, it's just too onerous to head on back up the hill. Yeah. Yes. So they never bothered. <laughs> I think it's extraordinary. Right. Yeah. The, the hill, you know, I, I love hills, but... It, a lot of people, it's like, well, I could go for a walk, but the memory of like trudging up the hill is so, you know, you don't, you so don't look forward to it that it stops you leaving in the first place. So I admire the way, because there's no ski lift for go karts. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, someone's actually texted in. If it doesn't have a motor, it's a billy cart. So there we go. Oh, so there we are. Like, okay. Yeah. Um, we had a make do slip and slide at home as well and we had it in our front yard which was huge in the country and once again the end was just a big bump 
and that that just stopped it. Like we got injured from that as yeah. well. But when you would walk back every single time, and mm. it, like if we were walking home from school, we have to walk up our driveway. It was huge and it was annoying, and you didn't want to do it. But we would walk back up that. 50 wow, times yeah. if there was a slip and slide going down. You really need to lubricate a slip and slide. It's essential, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> what can happen? Is it worse than court burn? Yeah, I think mm. it is just because it's like not rubber plastic. It, it, it's horrible. We went through so much dishwashing detergent yeah. and then we went through the laundry detergent. Mum was not happy. I find you don't get a lot of sympathy for a slip and slide injury. <laughs> no. I think it's sun. It's sunny. It's fun. There's probably what do they have? Sunny boys or whatever out. <laughs> no boys. one's got time for you bitching and moaning about no. your your third degree rubber slip and slide burns. That no. is hilarious. Yeah. We were talking about crises before. Yeah. So these all sound like very good resilience building exercises yeah. for you. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. I think I think you're right. <laughs> well, now if I yeah I, I'm nothing like I was when I was younger. Resilient. Stupid. I was going to say tough, but no, I think it was more stupid. Um, if I tripped over now, I'm out for two weeks. <laughs> was mercurochrome, did you go through it? What's is that? It, is it mercurochrome? Oh, it was sounds it, great. The red, sure the, the, the red and medicinal thing that you'll put on a wound. Oh, yes. And uh, it makes oh. the wound look even worse. Wow. Yes. Mm. What, is that what it was called? Oh, yeah, I used to love that. I have it on my knees did, all the time. Did it do anything? No, I don't. It, just, it was just proved your war wounds. Does it distract you from the other pain by creating another <laughs> alternate source of <laughs> agony? I think so. It must do. Yeah. I mean, it did just make it look so much worse, didn't it? Yeah. But you, my hand-me-downs, because I would get toy hand-me-downs. Oh, yeah. And now my son has some of these hand-me-downs. Oh, really? Still and, going? And so he, let, let's say he uh, he trashed a Burton Ernie. They were having a good time in this vehicle for decades. And now <laughs> he's, like, ruined it. And I feel like I've, like, upset the memory of whoever gave it to me. Oh. Like, yeah. when, you tr- when you make a hand-me-down expire through overuse... Is that I don't know? Is it loving? Is it is that a is that a happy end? I think it has to, to, to be a, a happy life? end. Yeah. I think so. It's, yeah. it's destiny fulfilled. Okay, good. Oh, I appreciate <laughs> that. I'll pass it on to Ernie because he's looking around going, "Where the hell's Bert?" And this car that's oh. totally trashed. Uh, but yeah, I, was there anything? Were there hand me downs in your life, Simon? I mean, you. you... I was pretty lucky because I had a very large family, especially on my mum's side, and so all my uncles, whenever they got bored of one of their toys, like a remote control car, for example. Oh, cool. Or even uh, computers. I inherited a lot of like when everyone else was playing with Xboxes and Playstations. I had like a Commodore sixty four or something ah! like this. So I had all these really old console games, and no one wanted to come over and play them, but I loved them. <laughs> yeah. well, that's right. I mean, I've, I'm presently dealing with a hand me down. This because my laptop died, my phone's oh, dead. You are. Oh, that's right. And I'm like, when you have someone else's computer with all its quirks, I, you know, there's like this pop up that's every ten seconds. Reading the news is impossible because it says McAfee antivirus. All this. And anyway, it's like this isn't mine. It will never be mine. Uh, and that's why. But um, at least the Billy Cart went to a good home. Yeah, and you bonded with it. And, we did. Yeah. It had a good life. And, yeah, when it died, it was probably a good thing. Yeah. Otherwise it was us. I mean, my dad made me a – I was obsessed with one of the Ninja Turtles, the purple one. Oh, Donatello. Yeah, yeah. Donatello, me and, too. And he – what was his weapon? It was just a stick, wasn't it, basically? Basically. Yeah, so I, I got given a stick. A staff or a stick? A staff or I a think, stick, yeah. yeah. Ah. And uh, I just, and he, but I I got the stick because initially uh, Dad made me nunchucks. <laughs> 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 and I did not go through the requisite training. <laughs> and there were, every member of the family got injured. <laughs> uh, completely unintentionally. Me, mostly. Uh, but yeah, these homemade devices that you get... 
they're glorious. I mean, I, yeah, I, the above ground pool that we had, it, everything was secondhand. There was a spa with. How do we get a spa? How do you get a secondhand spa? Wow. How on earth? Tremendous you luck, I suppose. I guess so. <laughs> but you know, these it's you know, it'll take forty-five minutes to heat up, and you know, yeah. one of the jets is sporadic and or whatever. But you end up getting lumped with these luxury goods. Yeah, luxury goods, <laughs> and so everybody thinks that you're surrounded by luxury, but ultimately you're sitting on a sporadically spurting jet. Oh, the burden. <laughs> getting whacked in the face with secondhand nunchucks. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. From Primal Screen, Monday nights on Triple R, we're joined to talk film this morning by Scholastic Cinephile, Flick Ford. Morning, Flick. Oh, hey, gang. Uh, <laughs> Great intro. Now, yeah, I'm still in that. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, terribly excited by what you're bringing to us this morning. Yes, I thought, I thought, I thought you may have already seen it. It is um, Fire of Love, which actually featured as part of MIF recently. Uh, I got to see it at the IMAX, which uh, was an overwhelming experience. I bet. Let me just say. Yeah. <laughs> For listeners who are not familiar with Fire of Love, it's about two uh, very intrepid volcanologists and lovers, Katia and Maurice Kraft. Um, And if those names are familiar, that is possibly because they were also the subject of two other documentaries, uh, both by Werner Herzog, Into the Inferno from 2016. (sighs) That's right. (laughs) And um, there's also The Fire Within, Requiem for Katia and Maurice Kraft, um, which actually came out earlier this year, but I I don't know if many people have seen that that doco. Uh, so this Fire of Love is directed by Sarah Dosa. Uh, she's a documentarian who um, really has two other, really two main other features to her name. Uh, the Last Season, which came out in 2014, and The Seer and the Unseen, which came out in 2019. Um, <clears throat> kind of quite different uh, subject matter for both those films. So I'm, I'm interested that she has has turned to these two. Um, They are very captivating on screen. They're really interesting. So um, Katia and Maurice died in a volcanic explosion in 1991. So the story is um, about their love affair with volcanoes, um, but also with one another. So it has this bitter sweetness to it. Um, It is made up entirely of archival footage. Um, However, there are some brief uh, interludes of animation to kind of help draw out the particular dynamics of their relationship. Um, It is narrated by artist, filmmaker and author Miranda July. Um, Miranda July, I think most people are familiar with her, but she wrote and directed and also starred in uh, Me, Me, You and Everyone You Know and The Future. And she also wrote and directed Kajillionaire from, I think it was 2020. Yeah, so and she's but she's also known as an author. Um, she authored a, a book of short stories called No One Belongs Here More Than You, and a collection of non-fiction short stories called It Chooses You, which is actually one of my favourite books. I can't recommend it enough. It's about her going through um, basically classified ads and following them up and talking to people who are selling very bleak items. <laughs> I don't know. It's my particular kind of thing. <laughs> Not for everyone, maybe. Uh, and more recently, she wrote the novel The First Bad Man, which was, again, like one of my faves. I think she's a great writer. However, she has a very kind of like, she has a very kind of uh, twee, mm. screwball vibe about her. Um, I think people either love her or hate her. Um, I am a big fan, but I still had some hesitation with her being the choice for the narrator for 
a, a project which seems so gigantic and so um, – I don't know. I just feel like her earnestness, mm. um, which sometimes borders on saccharine, would really kind of just be a real mismatch, um, especially with the subject matter. And um, I think also for me, the documentary, similar to Herzog's approach, you know, it could be presented almost without narration. His narration, of course, is <laughs> so iconic. <laughs> but the footage speaks volumes. Um, but I have to say, despite my reservations, July is actually uh, a really excellent narrator for this. Um, she lo- lends the film this kind of um, lovely intimacy and tender- tenderness. That it is quite a sweet um, relationship that these two vulco- volcanologists, I can't say that, <laughs> Especially at bloody seven twenty in the morning. Um, yeah, it's it, they've got a really beautiful relationship, and that really un, um, plays out in the film. Um, and Sarah Dosa, the director, she's just done an amazing job. I think sometimes when we're thinking of archival footage, sometimes we focus like, well, you know, she didn't design the angles, but she co- compiles it, and it's that curating and going through of what would have been so much film footage and we're talking actual film um it's just so compelling and like i said i saw it on the imax screen um i'm sure many other myth viewers did as well it was an overwhelming experience it is now available to see at most cinemas here in melbourne so i encourage everyone to check it out um there's just something captivating about watching these volcanoes erupt there's obviously a violence to it but a real beauty and Mm. there's a poeticism and something I love about Fire of Love um, and it probably was one of my favourite films from the festival was that it also talks about the filmmaking process Um, so Katia and Maurice you know they're volcanologists I'll get through it one day (laughs) Um, but they're also creative they're, they're making creative decisions with it's just the two of them usually out on the volcanoes they go out on these intrepid trips and put themselves in positions of great danger and that is how they died um but they're also making framing decisions they're making they're taking you see all these the behind the scenes where they do several different takes of what's meant to be just a natural reaction (laughs) just incredible there's moments of real humor in in kind of these very earnest um scientists who are also starting to play around with film form and i think that's really exciting and um, we also see their different passions and their different personalities. Cardia is actually more drawn to photography um, and Maurice is all about the moving image. So we see this, just different dynamics to their relationship and what they're drawn to. How do they justify the danger they put themselves in in an academic sense? Mm. Well, they do manage to find out a lot about how to warn people before the volcano is going to erupt. And that was something that they actually tried to do for, um, there's a few cases and I won't ruin it for anyone in terms of um, there is a bit of drama edge to it, but they do do sort of notice, hey, this is actually really dangerous. We've noticed these um, different things. They're collecting, they're doing all sorts of samples. They're doing scientific work at the volcanoes. They just happen to record their time there. Um, Everyone who... They get taken up by guides. The guides leave them there, though. And so they are alone for most of the time on the top of this <laughs> volcano. Um, so a lot of that material has provided really valuable. And I think there's not that many volcanologists in the world, at least at the time when they were studying it. Um, and so it's kind of unusual that two out of the, I don't know how many, I think yeah. they do give a statistic, it's like 50 or 100 maybe in the world, Um they're together. They're, they've got a long-term relationship, which is in itself an interesting thing to work with your partner yeah. in what is a very, I imagine, high-risk 
situation. So that that's great to watch on yeah. screen. Do they have a? Is it sexy? <laughs> <laughs> Look, what do you say? Maybe some some of the early photos of them. They're kind of babing, you know, in that sixties seventies vibe, but um. Nah, look at them. It's not. It's not a sexy film. If you can't, I is mean, it scary? It's. Um, see, I found it really. I found it thrilling. I absolutely loved Herzog's Into the Inferno. Me too. And so, if you that sinking into that and the mesmerising um, footage of lava mm. is is so captivating. And I think because we ourselves cannot ever, well, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> don't get that close to volcanoes. So there's something really. Wonderful when film can capture something that we don't have access to and we can place ourselves kind of at the point of mercy of like, oh, my God, this is so scary. And watching it on the IMAX screen, but honestly, watching it on any cinema theatre screen, I think will be a really powerful experience. And there is the poeticism, I think, of the director's style. Like Dosa does lend something to it and July as well with her narration. And it does tell a story. It's not purely just footage. And yeah. I think it's really important to, to underline that. And on the footage, the 1991 photography blown up, it it doesn't diminish the quality of the footage at all? It doesn't. And if anything, those little scratches and imperfections, I mean, I'm talking as a film nerd. I know I've got Clem Vasto <laughs> also in the room. I love all that stuff. And I think that it's film isn't about the precise, you know, real cinema isn't about the precision of, of focus or, you know, it being a clear image always. Sometimes the obstruction of the image is exactly what makes it cinema. Mm. <laughs> Not to sound too wanky, sorry. I know, right? <laughs> Can I have that on a T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this film, uh, Volcanologists, a documentary, where is it showing and what's it called and who's the director? Yeah, Sarah Dosa, Fire of Love, uh, screening at pretty much every theatre I can see in Melbourne, mainly independent cinemas though. Beautiful. Yeah, Flick forward. Thank you. <laughs> My Thank pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Vicar Bull and Linda Bull have been at the heart of Australian music for more than 30 years. After recording three classic albums with the Black Sorrows, they issued their self-titled debut in 1994 and have collaborated, collaborated with a huge array of Australian artists live and on studio albums, and at least seven studio albums together, including 2021's The Wait. You won't believe what's in store for you. Don't turn off the radio. <laughs> Please welcome to Breakfasts, Vicar and Linda Bull. Yay! Yay. Good morning. It's so good to be here. It is great. <laughs> Oh, it's just thrilling. Uh, it's and it's always terrific. You you pop up uh, on, with Brian Wise over the year. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, your association is deep with the station. It is. I mean, we go right back to when it was in Victoria Street. Uh, we used mm-hmm. to pop in there when we started our careers. We did our launch in the Triple J space for our first Triple record, Triple R space <laughs> for our first record. And, you know, always, always supporting us. So yeah. that's why we're here at 7 in the morning. No, we, got yeah, up, totally. no, yeah. we got up at 6 to get ready to come into <laughs> oh, the radio. Well, that's dedication, so, yes. so thank you. Oh, you know, we love you guys. Thanks so much. <laughs> uh, and do you uh, – what, what is it about uh, collaboration and people and community that you think Triple R embodies and that helps your creativity? Oh, we so much. I mean, like we've met a lot of musicians that uh, we've heard on the station, mm. and when we cross paths, we we get an idea of what they're doing, so we can talk about the music, and then we meet, and then so it's easy when you kind of know what they're doing before you meet them. Uh, Mojo's one, and um, Ben Salter's another. Yeah, I mean Dan Kelly too. Yeah. <laughs> over the years, it's yeah. been great. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 
you can hear a pin drop outside, which is unusual given the amount of people in the building. There's a lot of hubbub and then you came here and they, they don't want to interrupt. So. Yes, <laughs> which is the effect that you have. Uh, and Tell us about opening up and how important live music is and maybe uh, community radio plays in the culture of live music. Well, it's so important, you know, um, you, because you're so supportive, it's, it's, you're always, you know, showcasing new artists, and mm. which is fantastic for us. And, and getting back on the road and, and getting to play music again has been wonderful for everybody. And, and, you know, we hear about gigs on the radio course, who's playing where, and yeah. every, you know, from small little bars to, to everything, it's just fantastic. And just to, just to have that support and to have you guys, you know, getting our music out there, it's, it just means the world to us. It's Well, what about in lockdown? I lockdown. Mean, we we yeah. couldn't play, but everyone here played our music and got the word out that we had a record. It would have been really difficult. I mean, we were trying our best on social media. Triple R was a lifesaver. Yeah. You know, mm. you, Linda Thank was you. saying last night how you saved her life. You know, she listened to you every day. and. Mm. Well, I would garden because I'm, we, we reached out in our own sing-song through out the last three years in lockdown and that was our way of giving back but also you kind of feel like when you do that you're a bit exhausted to just to turn on the radio and have it soothe me personally I just found it really kind of quite moving like I'd sit in the garden and I'd whack on the radio and whack, whack, put you on and it just kind of like gave me an idea that you know oh, it was a two-way street yeah you, know, you go out and you, you give out and it comes back absolutely uh Ben is with us. Can you introduce uh, Ben and tell us what you why, guys... Why is he here? Yeah. Because Ben <laughs> plays amazing guitar. He's an incredible guitarist. We he, go back a long way. We do. Yeah. Oh, many years. And then Ben um, went to Germany, didn't you, Ben? Disappeared. You went to Berlin with your wife. And, and uh, so we lost him for about 10 years. Is wow. that right? Yeah. Three and a half years. Felt like ten. Well, felt like ten years, Ben. We missed you that much. Ben Edgar for everybody out there listening. If you know he's playing, you know who he plays with. Um, Lots of people, lots of artists around the world, and Charlotte also, his partner, is a wonderful cello player who played with Vic and I for many years as well. So we're lucky to have him. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Blessing. Thank you. Well, not anyone, not just anyone would agree to um, get up this early to sing a song for for us and for everybody listening. So I feel like we should make use of your pipes while they're all warmed up and ready to go. Okay. So if you and also you've got a shiny new tambourine. I have a new tambourine that some beautiful um, girls came to a show because they collect tambourines and they they had been following us around the country trying to get me <laughs> to sign this one and I admired it so much for for everyone out there who can't see this. It's a it's like a disco tambourine. I can do my <laughs> lipstick in it. Oh, Purpose. <laughs> it's wonderful. The spork of instruments. <laughs> um, so whenever you're ready, you can kick it off. Okay. Abby messaged me and said, I messed up again, and I wish I was dead. I'm growing older, I have so many doubts. I said I know what you were talking about. And Tony called me on the telephone, said I'm tired all the time, and I feel so alone. And the world is falling down on my TV screen. I said, hey, Tony, 
terrific and so deserving of the applause and I'm sure there are people in their cars and kitchens right now wishing they were here to see it. Um, well, but you got to hear it. You got to hear That's it. as good as it gets. Where else you get radio like that? That's extraordinary. Subscribe on behalf of the goosebumps that <laughs> you get from performances like that. An okay. expert tambourini. Oh, thank Didn't you Didn't get so distracted much. by your own reflection at all. I, <laughs> once. <laughs> I did once. I heard once. I heard one little, what was that? I missed, one little I extra missed, beat in there. So I, I missed like. it because I was looking at myself. <laughs> Um, it means so much to have you here to support Triple R and not just today but all, all over the years. It's always such a pleasure to have you in studio and to hear your music and to get to play it and also to have you here. It feels like such a celebration. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you, Ben, you. as well. We want to thank Triple R too for all the yeah. support over the years and, you know, helping musicians like us. It means a lot to us as well. So thank you all very much. One more time, everybody. <laughs> thank you. 
Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasts, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website.